The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priest and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Let us pray. And Father, as we gather around your word and listen to the events of the demise of our Lord Jesus, we do ask, Father, that you would grant us fresh insight into what is a common and ordinary story to us, and that it not be lost on us, the great love that was expended in sending your Son into the world and that he came to be judged in our place. Write these truths upon our hearts. And grant us faith to believe and to perceive and to see. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It may be helpful to look back to actually your first lesson in our series tonight. as where we will focus our thoughts for a brief few moments. But in the mid-1980s, the Citril Intelligence Agency was beside itself. The agency, in the matter of a short span of time, a couple of months, lost several highly placed intelligence assets inside the Soviet Union. 
Employees scurried around Langley, attempting to figure out what exactly was happening. It was very nervous. They were filled with anticipation. Everyone was frightened. Was there a double agent? Had the Soviet Union, a formidable enemy at that time, in that period of our country's history, had they developed new communications technology in which they were intercepting our communications? What exactly was it? Why was everything falling apart in the intelligence network? Nine years later, in 1994, a man named Aldrich Ames, he was the CIA's senior counterintelligence officer in the Soviet division, confessed to serving as a double agent for the Russians. Given his unique position, he was the most powerful man in the counterintelligence industry dealing with the USSR. Ames had privileged access to the most sensitive CIA intelligence reports, especially the sources. He often worked the sources of those who were in the Soviet Union themselves. In June of 1985, he turned over six pounds of documents to a Russian official and received millions upon millions of dollars. It was a catastrophe for the Central Intelligence Agency. It unfolded over nine years, and Ames has gone down as the most notorious spy in American history. And it strikes us with the question, why? Why did he do it? And Ames, in his own words, after he went to prison, he explained the reasons. He explained that he was exhausted by the constant back and forth between the Russians and the Americans. He was also disillusioned, not knowing the rightness of his cause. And he was burnt out, a man who had given himself wholeheartedly to the cause, who had risen to the top of his field. He no longer believed in what he was doing. He was tired and went for the money. The Soviets paid well. And this is perhaps the disturbing truth about those who are traitors, those who are guilty of sedition, is that traitors are typically burned out loyalists. They give up on their cause because they no longer believe it's worth it. They no longer want to back the horse in which they have given their lives for. And as we consider the role of Judas throughout the Passion narrative, I would suggest to you that Aldrich Ames is a helpful foil to think through with Judas. That Judas was a disciple. He was one who had been summoned by Jesus to follow. And he had given up his life three years of following Jesus. He had listened to Jesus' teachings. He had eaten with Jesus. He had believed that Jesus, along with the other disciples, that he was the Messiah, the one who was going to bring the reign of God back to the earth. But we've noted over the past several weeks that in this final phase of Jesus' ministry, he began to instruct the disciples about his coming demise, about his death. And that he would then rise from the dead. And we've seen that Judas was not alone in being just kerfluffled by this. What, what did he mean? 
He could not go and die. A crucified Messiah would be a failed Messiah. Peter had rebuked Jesus for this. Peter had told him that he was wrong. The other disciples began to argue about who was the greatest. James and John began to jockey for position at Jesus' right and left. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. Perhaps they thought it was a parable. Perhaps they thought he was just being hyperbolic. Because if Jesus was the Christ, then he needed to go to Jerusalem and be enthroned. (coughs) Judas, you could say, understood just what Jesus said. That he was to go and be crucified. And so everything that he had given himself for, he then backed out on. He no longer thought Jesus was the winning horse. The other disciples were living with similar questions and doubts. And it raises a question for us, one that's important that echoes down through the ages. What exactly was happening in all of this? What was being challenged? And simply put, it's the challenge of faith. It's the challenge that confronted the disciples then and there. And it's the challenge that confronts the church here and now. That the challenge of faith is not simply isolated to those momentous days as Jesus went up to the cross. That the challenge of faith is still very real for the disciples of Jesus today. It's an interesting moment in chapter 26 that brings this challenge out very clearly. The disciples were with Jesus at the home of Simon the leper, and a woman enters and takes a very expensive ointment, we're told. The other gospel writers fill fill it out for us that it was basically the working wages for one year of a man who gave himself to labor. This was a very expensive ointment, 300 denarii. And she takes the ointment and breaks it upon Jesus' head. John tells us that Judas then led the disciples, but the disciples were all in agreement that they became indignant. They were angry about this. And they ask a question. They say, why this waste? They thought it was excessive. But then they don't stop there. They decide to pile shame upon shame. They go further in verse 9. And they tell her that it would have been better that this ointment had been sold and that it had been given then to the care of the poor. The disciples perfectly delighted the treasurer and the missions committee. They shamed the woman for what she had done. They thought it was extravagant. It was too much. Her devotion for Jesus was just simply all pomp and circumstance to them. But you'll note in the passage that Jesus had another evaluation of it. What they critiqued, Jesus commended. What they counted as waste, Jesus considered it actually to be beautiful. And what they despised, Jesus praised. There was a gap between the disciples' evaluation of this moment, of what this woman had done, and Jesus' evaluation of it. And it's that gap that captures for us the challenge 
that we as the church face today. It captures for us the challenge of faith. You see, because Jesus gives an explanation to what the woman has done. If you follow in verse 12, Jesus explains that the woman has prepared him for burial. And this is what the disciples, despite all their familiarity with Jesus, despite all their time with Jesus, despite all the teachings of Jesus, this is what they still had not absorbed. They had not accepted the purposes of God that were going to unfold through a cross. For them, they still lived by their own theological perceptions. That a Messiah was to be live in glory. That a, a Messiah was not to be humiliated. A Messiah would not know shame. That a cross and the kingdom of God could not be married together. They could not understand a kingdom that involved a cross. They could not understand that exaltation would involve humiliation. They couldn't understand that true glory would also involve shame. There was a concerted, willful effort by the disciples to push Jesus' message of the cross to the periphery. Each time he spoke of it, they tried to change the subject. They argue about greatness. They argue about who's being first. They try to simply shut him up. Stop talking about that. Let's get back to when you come in your glory. This was what the disciples were interested in. But this woman saw something else. She obviously had eyes to see something else, eyes that can only be given by God himself. She understood something of the good news in Jesus' death, and that is, in fact, what Jesus turns to call his message in this passage. He says that it's good news. That what this woman has done, wherever this good news, this gospel is proclaimed, she will be mentioned. She understood something of the good purposes of God in the destruction of Jesus. The good news of the death of the one for the many. The good news that the judge was judged in the place of us. That he is the righteous dying in the place of the unrighteous. She saw something that the disciples, despite all of their training, had not yet clearly seen. Because we have to be honest about one thing. That Judas did betray Jesus in the garden. And it's haunting and horrific how it unfolds. But it's not the first betrayal we've seen in a garden in the biblical story, is it? There was another betrayal in the time of man's innocence, dwelling with God in the temple garden of Eden, when all things were right and every manner of things was right, when God dwelt with humanity and humanity lived in thanksgiving and joy and freedom before God. And yet human beings and our first parents decided to go our own way. And Paul tells us that we failed to give thanks to God. And rather than giving thanks to him, we turned to worship the creature rather than the creator. We decided to go our own way, to use our own logic, that we wanted to determine what was good and what was evil. 
And friends, that was the betrayal that was at the heart of the human experience. And this woman sees something into it. And it is by a betrayal, a second betrayal in the garden, that the first betrayal of the garden is going to be undone. It's the mysterious logic of the kingdom of heaven, a logic that the disciples were still deaf to hear. But it will be undone by the death of Jesus. That he will undo all the judgment and all the consequences, all the alienation. That he will bring reconciliation by atonement. But then Jesus alludes to this rich notion that his undoing will also not be his end. See, there's an important series of events that are unfolding here in chapter 26 in Matthew's gospel. There is the threat of death. The chief priest and even Judas, a friend, are conspiring against him. His head is anointed with oil. And then he will go to the Last Supper where he has a meal prepared for him in the presence of his enemies. For those of you familiar with the Bible, you'll hear the echoes of one of the most famous passages in all of scriptures, the 23rd Psalm. The valley of the shadow of death. But the God who is with him, his head being anointed with oil, and yet his cup overflows. And surely goodness and mercy, the steadfast love of God will chase him down and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, Jesus very clearly understood that he was to be judged, that he was to serve many by undergoing judgment. But he knew that his God would not forsake him, that he was the one righteous one who could stand in our place for us, and that God would evacuate that verdict that verdict that humanity and all of our betrayal and all of our anger and all of our burnt outness and all of our exasperation brought on its head, that God would undo it. And friends, the challenge for those disciples and the challenge for these disciples today is to believe that this is God's way of righting a broken world. That this is the logic that God uses. It's too subtle for some. But yet beautiful and sophisticated. In the way that it works out the most broken aspects of our creation. And brings harmony and peace. And betrayal and death is overcome by death itself. And this is the challenge for us. Is to marry the cross and the kingdom. And to see the glory of God in all of the shame and all of the humiliation that we intended the cross to be. That God has undone it all. Let's pray.